Would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to 1 Peter chapter 3. This Lord's Day, I want to continue our 2020 Advent series in which we are exploring some of the fake news around Christ and Christmas that are often broadcast around the holidays by, by skeptics of the Christian faith. Fake news has become sort of a, a, a phrase, a, a catchphrase in our culture that gets hurled around in various ways. And I thought I'd sort of riff on that and play off of that because around the holidays every year, inevitably, there's all sorts of fake news that gets tossed around with regard to Christ and Christmas. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't quite understand why people who don't believe in something take it upon themselves to get so grinched up, scrooged out, go Karen on the holiday. I mean, there's lots of things that I don't believe in that other people believe in, but I don't get all worked up and try to ruin their beliefs or, or their traditions by fabricating fake news to boot. You know, I, it's like, why make up fake stuff to attack something that you don't even believe in? I mean, there, there's, there's a psychology behind that, but alas, I'm, I'm not going to get into that today. In previous weeks, what we've been doing is just trying to explore the, the fake news that gets hurled around Christ and Christmas, particularly gets hurled upon Christians. And so we're looking at some of the claims that skeptics and, and, critics, and critics and antagonists make concerning Christ, the virgin conception, Christmas, various uh, celebrations and sort of cultural expressions and traditions around the holiday like Christmas trees. And, you know, people say, oh, the Christmas tree, it's pagan, or the story of, 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 of a god who's born of a virgin, you know, that's pagan. All this is just pagan copies. And so we've deconstructed all of that fake news. And, and further, we've also looked not just at the, the critics and the antagonists that are out there sort of hurling stuff at the church. We've also looked at some of our internal Christian fake news around the holidays that has uncritically crept into the church, such as New Age angels and Christian art and Christmas decorations. Uh, and I, I, saw a, I, I saw a hilarious picture of someone throwing their New Age angel in the trash can after the sermon, like, thanks, Matt. You know, I'm not, I'm not asking you to throw away your stuff or whatever. I'm just trying to help understand, you know, our, you know kind of our own, our own baggage there. So don't, don't destroy, you know, stuff in your home, but, you know, reassess, as we've been talking about, receive, reject, reassess, you know, redeem. So this week, I'm, I'm going to explore some more of the fake news that is within the church, and I'm going to examine the nativity scene as it has been commonly depicted in Christian art and reenactments of Christmas to show you some of the fake news around our depictions of the coming of the Christ child. And again, please don't go home <laughs> and smash your nativity scenes or whatever. But uh, the title of my sermon this morning is Away in the Manger with a question mark, and I hope to deconstruct uh, some of the popular images around this away in the manger stuff. There's even a song about it that I'll, I'll get to at the conclusion of the sermon. Now, one of the aims of, of this sermon series is just to prepare you to think critically about how to understand the history and the theology of Advent. Another aim of this sermon series is to equip you to engage the attacks that are made around the history and the theology of, of Advent and, and your faith more deeply as a worshiper and a follower of Jesus Christ. Further, the, an aim of this sermon series is to help you to understand the reality of, of you know, what we believe and the, and the doctrines of the church that have been passed to us that we, we see in Scripture. As a church, further, not just what we believe, but how we behave. We, we, as a church, we've been commissioned by Christ Jesus to go into the world and make disciples. Being a disciple entails that you know your stuff. Uh, the word disciple in the Greek, mathetes, it, it is a word that means a pupil, a learner. And so this sermon series is aiming to disciple you. It is aiming to, so that you would learn, and you would learn specifically how to defend the faith and how to think critically about some of our own practices around the holiday of Advent or Christmas, which leads me to the first point on your outline, interloper attacks. An interloper, to quote from the dictionary, is one who interferes with another's affairs, an intruder, end quote. The phenomenon of, of interference or intrusion is not a new phenomenon. It goes back all the way to the days of Christ. It goes back even before Christ in the days of the history of Israel, uh, of God's chosen people when they faced uh, opposition, uh, interloper attacks against them for the things that they believed and the way that they lived. From Abraham to the apostles, this has been going on. Before the days of Abram, from Noah's trial to the New Testament, this has been going on. God's people have been called to, to stand in a fallen world where there are going to be people who, who attack them for the way that they live and the things that they believe. And, and we don't take a, you know, a, an oppositional stance in this. We respond with grace, knowing that apart from the grace of God in saving us, something we didn't do to ourselves, we too would be on the other side of the fence. 
We were enemies with God, the scripture teaches us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the scripture teaches us. And so, so as there are interloper attacks and things that come our way, we, we need to be humbled and be reminded that we would be there too. And so we don't respond with aggression or anger, we respond with compassion. God's people have been called to defend the faith. Draw your eyes to the text I ask you to turn to. 1 Peter chapter 3, and would you draw your eyes at verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. Now, now the, the, the phrase, make a defense, is from this Greek word, apologion. Let me put it in front of you. Apologion is the word ap apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics, which is a field of study that is devoted to defending the faith from attacks, from interlopers. Now, when we hear the word apologetic or we hear the word apologize, we might mistakenly think of, you know, apologize to your sister for taking her last chicken nugget or whatever. And so you apologize when you're, you're, you're being sorry for something, right? But the word apologia originally meant a formal defense of one's beliefs or behaviors. So if I said apologize to your sister, well, I would like to make a formal defense for taking the last chicken nugget. You see, she had promised it to me, and so it was already mine. The other day I gave her my last nugget, and it was a fair trade, Father. So that is my apologia. It is making a rational defense for your behavior or for a belief. Now, in this case, Peter commands us, by the inspiration of the Spirit, this is God's word, to be ready to defend the Christian way of life and doctrine in the face of interlopers. Now, let me be clear up front the interlopers that we are deconstructing in this sermon series are real interlopers. These are real critics of Christ. Um, those who go out of their way to attack the faith. Real opponents. I'm not talking about the so-called war on Christmas stuff that is often less about actual Christian attacks and it's more about a victim mentality, a kind of Christian Karen self-martyrdom, frankly. Uh, Christmas is a federal holiday in the United States of America. It is widely and freely celebrated. I, we're not under attack in this regard. Sure, there are some Scrooges that come along. There are some, you know, crazy radical liberals who want to do goofball stuff or whatever. But, you know, for the most part, you know, it's not like, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about actual people who are making actual claims about the faith and about doctrine. And the way that we respond, as I've already noted, is by noting that we ourselves, we would be there had it not been for the grace of God in Christ to save us and rescue us from our sin and, and, and to open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. Now, 1 Peter 3, as well, admonishes the church to respond when interlopers come in a particular way. What does he say? Look at the text with gentleness and with reference. Often this is missing. And sadly, around the Advent season, and in particular around these kinds of subcultural war on Christmas stuff. Now, I have in mind uh, 2015, I, I'll take you guys back there if you've, if you've lost this memory, but in 2015, it was kind of raging. Starbucks came out with a new holiday cup, and it was a plain red cup, and people freaked out. And, and kind of the, the, Christ, the, the Christian Karen victim mentality martyr complex warriors started going crazy. And they were saying, and I quote, Starbucks hates Jesus. What is with this red cup? They hate Jesus. Now, if, if you don't know anything about the history here, since 1997, Starbucks has had a December uh, cup. And the, the cup rolls out and it's got kind of cultural, cultural uh, uh, Christmas symbols. And I say cultural because they're not religious ones. Starbucks wasn't, didn't have crosses and empty tombs and Bible verses on their cups. Uh, they had snowmen and ornaments and, and reindeer and stuff like that. You know, the, you know the, was, snowmans aren't in the Bible and reindeer and what have you. So anyway, there was an American evangelist, and I'm not going to name his name, but he went crazy on social media criticizing Starbucks for not having Christmas-related symbols in just the red cup. He described it as an agenda to remove Christ from 
Christmas. And he was, he was going crazy on this thing. They're, they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. And he started this trend by telling people to say to the baristas at Starbucks that, you know, when they ask for your name, they write it on your cup. And when your cup is done, they call your name out. Uh, when they ask for your name, to tell them your name is Merry Christmas. So that then they have to write Merry Christmas on the cup. Gotcha. And then they have to say Merry Christmas out loud. Gotcha twice, you know. So for all this happy holiday stuff, we'll just get everyone saying, uh, you know, we'll get our Christmas cups because they'll have to write it on there. And they're going to have to say, you know Merry Christmas too and this guy was standing outside and he was just going off on this video and uh, he had a Jesus t-shirt on uh, he also in the video pulled out a concealed carry gun and said yeah I brought my gun too to show you know those liberals or whatever and he goes on the video just ratcheting it up you know we're gonna go in there put on your Jesus shirts pack your gun in your pocket and tell them Merry Christmas and they got to say it and this like became a thing and the guy was being interviewed all around the news now, meanwhile, the, the interesting thing was that Starbucks actually had, let me put it in front of you, their Christmas blend. They were even giving out Advent calendars <laughs> and all sorts of other things. And Starbucks was like, we just thought the plain red cup was like a cool design. We weren't trying to like offend anyone or anything like that. So now, to be clear, I'm not defending Starbucks this morning. Uh, I'm actually on a coffee fast right now, so I'm, I'm sort of angry at all things coffee, but uh, I, I'm not defending them or anything like that. And I, I, I'm, you know, Walmart and Target and Best Buy and Home Depot who remove Christmas from their marketing. They do the happy holidays things. I even noticed In-N-Out had happy holidays on the, on the hamburger. Still got the Bible verses, though. But anyway, you know, the happy holidays thing. And you see these big companies, they don't have a problem saying Happy Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever. But with Christmas, you know, people get all intolerant, you know. I've even seen, there was a Gap ad, whatever holiday you wantaka was, <laughs> was a Gap ad. Whatever holiday you wantaka, uh, you know, that's just so American. Just do your own thing, whatever you wantaka. And so you can have a wantaka, a Hanukkah, a Kwanzaa, a, you know, whatever, and, and no one trips. Yeah, and people trip on, you know, Christmas, whatever. These are private companies. Uh, we have a federal holiday. These are private companies. And, and further, all of this is just consumerism. And that in particular concerns me. It concerns me when big corporations pander to Christian faith to sell merchandise and products to us. Oh, we'll slap a couple reindeers and the snowmen on there and then the Christians will buy our stuff. We really have to be careful about this. And the irony in, in regard to this example is, is that uh, you're, you're mad over a cup that actually has uh, a, you know, a, a pagan goddess on it. <laughs> Starbucks uh, refers to the, the figure on the Starbucks cup as the sirens. The sirens often appeared in Greek mythology as a beautiful and yet dangerous creature that lured unsuspecting sailors with lovely music and, and, and voices to sort of attract and seduce sailors, sort of pagan sex cult type stuff. The logo also resembles the goddess from history named Astarte from the Bronze Age to classical times. Astarte was a goddess who was worshipped throughout the eastern Mediterranean. She was a deity linked to fertility, sexuality, and war. Sex and war. I mean, it's like she's also known as a snake goddess and having a cult of worship. So in any case, why be upset, upset that there's not candy canes and reindeers and Christmas trees when you got a pagan goddess or a siren on the cup? In fact, it's even the logo of the company. Listen, our mission is not to get businesses to patronize us with pseudo-Christian symbols or to strong-arm these private businesses with social media. Uh, our mission is to engage not in some culture war where people are angry and whatever. Our mission is to bring the gospel and to walk in good works in a world that is going to hell in a handbasket. Our mission is to preach Christ to the lost. And if, if, if we're going to be offend, offending the culture for anything, it ought to be that. Further, we've received a calling of suffering and a command to turn our cheeks in the face of it. Not to uh, virtue signal and videotapes our, ourselves when a holiday cup doesn't go our way or, you know, someone at the counter says, happy holidays. You can respond graciously and say thank you. You might even respond and say Merry Christmas. Even more important than saying Merry Christmas, just respond and share with them who Christ is. Now, now with these sorts of things uh, up front, I'm trying to equip you to engage the culture, but I don't want to just give you arguments. I also want to shape, as this passage is, your heart for it. It's with gentleness, the text says. Uh, the guy in the video is getting all ratcheted up. Again, I, I'm, I've trolled some of his social media. He's, he's done stunts like this before, and I, I'll get sidetracked if I start deconstructing the other sorts of videos that he has made. But it breeds this kind of antagonism where we're, where we're angry and we're going to run from the culture, we're going to attack the culture, and all of this 
Draw your eyes back at the text. In verse 16, Peter says, Keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We're going to be slandered. We're going to suffer. People are going to say stuff about us. People are going to accuse us of stuff or whatever. Uh, and, and our response is to, to respond with a good conscience and to walk in love and grace and mercy. Talk about my Jesus, though. I'm going to give you a defense because I'm commanded to. I'm commanded to. That's what the text of Scripture says. And the text of Scripture also tells me that I, I'm going to face suffering for it. And the text of Scripture tells me that, that, that I shouldn't avoid that. Because I, as the servant of the master, the master suffered, so who am I to think that I am somehow uh, above him that I might escape that? In fact, we're promised inside of scriptures. Talk about claiming the promises of the word of God. This is one I've yet to see on a coffee cup. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise of God's word to his people. Uh, further continuing that promise, verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You will be persecuted. So what do you do? Make videos, get people angry and ratchet it up? No, hold fast to the word of God and the gospel of salvation. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 continues. It's in front of you. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from who you learned this. Disciples are learners. They're learning not just doctrine, but they're learning duty, attitude. Verse 15, and that from your childhood you would have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures point us to Christ. That we would point Christ's church to Christ in the face of interlopers. And that we would respond to antagonism by pointing them to Christ. And that we wouldn't get discouraged and we wouldn't get off mission and we wouldn't be you know, involved in all these other things. But our, our response to the fake news... I hope you're getting this in this series, is to give an apologia, to give a defense, and to do so with gentleness and reverence, knowing that we're going to face these things. The sermon series is aiming to equip you for this end. In my last sermons, I've shown you interlopers who say that Christ, the figure of history and the man of faith, as well as Christmas, is from paganism. I have thoroughly debunked these claims in the last two sermons, so if you missed them, check them out online. Aside from the fact that pagan parallels that skeptics try to make, they simply don't work. Aside from this, there is the problem of history and culture. So for those who argue that pagans celebrated things in December, and you Christians celebrate things in December, so you guys historically stole it from the pagans, uh, one, historically that's not true. I've shown you in the, in, the, in the messages that are given to you. But let's keep in mind also just broad big picture here. There are a lot of things in Western culture that have pagan parallels because paganism was involved in the shaping of Western culture. So it absolutely doesn't prove anything. I use the illustration of wearing Nikes. This morning I'm wearing them again. I haven't, you know, committed abomination of desolation by dragging the Nikes into the room. You know Nikes. They're named after the pagan god Nike. Are you worshiping Nike? No, I'm just wearing some shoes for Pete's sake. For that matter, all the days of our week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, they're all named after pagan gods and pagan stuff. In fact, the months are named after pagan gods and pagan stuff. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean that we're pagans because you're like, oh, what day is it? Monday, oh, you're a pagan. You know, what month is it? December, oh, you're a pagan. No, that's just, that's absolutely absurd. Pagans have uh, uh, names for the month. We inherited some of those. We're not doing pagan stuff by referring to those. Pagans had winter celebrations. We got winter celebrations too. It doesn't prove Christmas is pagan. It just proves that humans do stuff in the winter. Now, the fact is, at the end of the day, we want to know whose stuff is true, whose stuff is really real. Because there is a God who is, and there's a God that men want, and the two are not the same. So, so with regard to celebrations and traditions, the question is if what is behind it is real. The claim that, that, that Christ and Christmas are these pagan remixes is, is absolutely ridiculous. It's wild and unfounded. And it doesn't deal with the real details of history and archaeology and science and, and, and scripture and tradition and faith. There are passed on that prove the veracity of the claims that the Christ is the eternal Son of God in the flesh, and that he was born, he was conceived asexually in a virgin, 
And that, that uh, piece of history actually matters to the story of redemption that we proclaim to you week after week. So now this week, though, I want to I move from interlopers into the in-house. This brings us to the next point on the outline. We want to look at ourselves. Before we remove the, the speck in the world's eyes, let's look at the rod in our eyes. When you look at Christian art and you read your Bible, you often see a lot of creative license and sometimes outright factual mistakes in it. This isn't limited to Christmas uh, think of the Last Supper. Let me put a picture in front of you here of the Last Supper. The apostles were not seated in chairs at the Last Supper. And they didn't look like, you know, white European guys either. So uh, tall, slender, white European guys sitting at a table. Uh, I think a white European guy painted this, uh, right? This, this was absolutely foreign to Middle Eastern Jewish culture. They ate on the floor. The a table would be on the floor or spread out of blankets and food would be served on it. You might have some mats and some pillows and they lay it on the ground. This is just inaccurate. It's an inaccurate representation. It's, it's fake news. From the very beginning of the Bible, artists have uh, committed acts of sort of fake news in the representation of biblical scenes. So it's important to always look back at the Bible and also look at your artwork. Again, if you've got a print of this somewhere in your house, please don't tear it up. It, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's sinful or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's important to see things how they are in scripture. Uh, artists from the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, right? They're, they're, uh, they're chewing on a, on a granny apple or a red apple or whatever, but the Bible doesn't say it was an apple. Uh, you know, maybe it was an avocado. Maybe they were about to make some guacamole. I don't know. Uh, it was an orange. I, the, the text doesn't say. Who knows? Some, maybe it's some fruit that's gone. I mean, who, who knows? Uh, but artists will depict that. Artists will even depict God in the Garden of Eden walking with a human body. That's artistic heresy. God is not a material being. He doesn't have hands and feet and a head. He's not a physical creature. He's not, he's not a man. Men are made in his image as physical representations of him, but he's incorporeal. He's immaterial. Uh, in fact, we are biblically commanded not to draw images of, the, of God himself. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's a big no-no. It's in the Ten Commandments. Last week we explored angels and we looked at how angels are, are, are shown in our art and how they get that wrong. You got these pretty lady angels, these tinkerbells. You got angels looking like the tooth fairy, not like the angels we find inside of the Bible. Think of the, uh, the, the great angel Satan, of course. He is depicted in ways that the Bible doesn't depict him. He's uh, you know, butt naked and red with a weird tail and a pitchfork. We don't see that inside of the Bible. Think about Paul's conversion. Uh, often when you see paintings of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, he's fallen off a horse. And it looks cool, but Acts doesn't say he fell off a horse. Here's the thing. Every artist is not a Bible scholar, let alone a theologian. This is very clear when you study art history, particularly church art history. Artists have a way of making things look like what is familiar to them in their culture. And so hence, we have a plethora of white, blue-eyed Jesuses with blonde hair looking like a skinny Fabio or whatever. And, and you also have minority artists who are going to create versions of Jesus that look like themselves as well. There is a saying that art reflects the culture that produces it. That is so true, and we see it really loudly in Christian art. And again, I'm not asking people to tear down you know, any of that or whatever. I'm, just, I'm trying to equip you to think critically about these things. Now, when it comes to the nativity, this sort of thing happens. We recreate the story according to our culture. Here's some of the common images, and today we're going to explore some of these. Now, we've already deconstructed the pretty uh, Tinkerbell Tooth Fairy uh, you know, angel ladies. We've, we've already gone there, so if you missed that, make sure you catch last week's sermon. But here you see the scenes, you got wise men, you got shepherds, they're kind of hanging it out, like, you know, hey, so what's it like being a magi, a magi, a wise guy, you know, what's that like, you know, uh, I was thinking about getting into shepherding, you don't have the wise men and the shepherds kind of hanging out, you've got this away in a manger, this detached manger that's like out in the sticks somewhere, and it's like crazy tiny, uh, with a couple of cows, you know, licking the baby Jesus or whatever. So let's talk about these pictures and, and let's dig into our modern inaccurate accounts. That is the third point on your outline. So we move from interloper attacks, in-house artists, now to inaccurate accounts. Please move from 1 Peter chapter 3, where we see the mandate that we're called to be able to give a defense. We're called to be able to engage accounts of our faith. And now let's move to the book of Matthew. This is the account of Christ's conception in the book of Matthew. We're also going to look at the Gospel of Luke, which gives us a, a conception account and a birth narrative. John uh, uh, starts from the very beginning of the world when you read John's Gospel. Mark, where he starts his Gospel, Jesus is full grown and throwing down. He just gets right to it. It's action-packed. Matthew and Luke give us the, the birth uh, accounts and, uh, and the narratives around that and genealogies and whatnot. And so we're going to look at those two accounts 
and we're going to compare it with some of the imagery that we have in our culture as a part of this kind of fake news series. So this is the account of Christ's conception and his birth. Let's compare it to what we've seen depicted in Christian art and even maybe what you've heard in the church. I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid in the church, I was subjected to a great deal of Christmas fake news. It was all well-intended. It certainly wasn't heretical per se. Uh, however, it was subtle and it painted a much different picture of Christ than what the scripture records. And so that, that said, as we're looking at this as we kind of deconstructing the narrative, it's not like, I don't know, you know, sort of pagan New Age angels or anything. It's just that some of the details are a little off and we lose a little something about the intimacy of the incarnation I want to show you. And hopefully if you haven't seen this before, it will, it will just enrich your week as you're thinking about the birth of Christ, the coming of the Christ child. So let me give you some fake news that we're going to deconstruct and then we'll turn to the, the, the Bible to dig into them. Number one, have you heard this before? that there were some really pretty looking new age angels with wings that came to Joseph and Mary to tell them about the virgin conception of, of, of the Christ child and later appeared to the shepherds in the fields. Again, we've already deconstructed that, so let's move on to the next one. Have you heard that Mary was super pregnant, super duper pregnant, due at any moment, and, and when Joseph took her to, to Bethlehem, have you heard that one? Number three, have, have you heard that Joseph failed to make travel plans? So when they got to Bethlehem, there were no friends, there were no family to stay with. There wasn't even a hotel. Have you heard that one? Uh, number four, because there was no place to stay, Joseph took Mary to an animal barn or, or stall or a stable, perhaps even a cave where she gave birth to Jesus the Christ child. Have you heard that one? And fifthly, the three wise men and the shepherds come to see baby Jesus at the same time in the cave or animal barn stall where he was born. So I'm going to submit to you these are fake news and what we're going to do is look at scripture, compare and contrast the fake news with the factual news inside of God's word. Let's open our Bibles. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So this is word of God. This is reliable word. Let's, let's take this and, you know, sola scriptura, place it over our culture and do some deconstruction. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a vision and tells him what is going on. And old Joe obeys and the revelation is given to him from verse 18 through verse 25. And all this revelation comes to Joe just in time because Mary was with, with child. And he's like, hold up, what's going on here? Verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph was a good guy. He wanted to protect Mary. He wanted to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The law of the Moses, uh, the, the teachings of the New Testament, they explain that when a couple is betrothed, if there was any infidelity before the consummation of their marriage, that it would be nullified. Betrothal in that culture was not like our engagement. It was much more like marriage. It was, it was actually binding. So that if it was broken, you would actually issue a certificate of divorce uh, in their system of engagement, a, a betrothal. Now we read in verse 24 that Joseph, was that Joseph receiving the revelation that it was not betrayal, but rather that it was a miracle. We read in verse 24 that he took Mary as his wife. And then look at verse 25. It specifies that they did not sexually consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. That said, in next week's sermon, I will address the fake news around the interlopers who claim that such a thing, the virgin conception, is impossible. That attack that the virgin, birth, uh, virgin conception and, and subsequent birth are, are impossible is just fake news, and I will explore that in next week's installation as we, as we finalize this series. But this week, I just want to stay focused on our in-house Fake news around the nativity. So look back at the text. We were in chapter 1. Now look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with Jesus uh, and, and he's born here, right? So verse 1, now after Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem in the, days of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star from the east and we have come to worship him. Now, the chapter goes on to give an account of the historical slaughter of the innocents. Herod uh, the, heard about the birth of the Messiah, and, and, and so he wanted to snuff out the Messiah by sending soldiers to the village of Jesus' birth to, to kill all the newborns there to snuff out the Messiah. It's sort of like that scene in Star Wars where young Anakin Skywalker kills all the young Jedis or whatever, right? He just wants to go in there and just take the lightsaber to them all. It's a, a horrible, wicked, dark, bloody night. The wise men or the mad guy, they, they catch up to the maniacal bloodthirst and they go to, to worship the Christ child and they, and they go to get out of town from this bloodthirsty tyrant of a king. As well, the Holy Family gets out of town. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, an angel warns Joseph in a dream about the present danger. Look at verse 13. They flee to Egypt. Look at verse 14, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 15. 
And then after his Her Herod dies, the Holy Family returns to the Holy Land in Nazareth. Look at verse 23, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. So as you can see from the Word of God, Ma Matthew doesn't have any of the fake news points that you see in front of you in verses 1 through 4. We, we have biblical angels. They are referred to with masculine pronouns. They are intimidating. They're scary. They're, they're not pretty. They, they make your knees knock. Points two through three in front of you on the fake news chart, you don't see those. Contrary to point four, we see a reference to a house and not to a barn or a cave. Look at Matthew 2.11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary with his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now this also gets us to point five the three wise men. Notice that the text doesn't say anything about there being three wise men. That's just conjecture based on the three gifts. And that's really something from our culture because in our culture, when you go to a birthday party, everyone's supposed to bring a present. Now, Jewish culture, doesn't, they're not a birthday culture. They don't do that. It's not a birthday culture. It's worth noting that in ancient Eastern church, tradition maintained actually that there were 12 wise men. Now, we can't be sure of the number. Matthew doesn't say, but suffice it to say, you know, sort of these images of three is kind of unrealistic. Caravans of that day would have traveled much deeper. Now, further, Matthew doesn't say that the, that the magi, the wise men, magi, overlap with the shepherds. Turns out that contrary to many nativity scenes that have the shepherds and the magi there, they were separate events that are removed from a period of time of some two to three years. We're going to see that when we turn to Luke and see the shepherds having seen the Magi here in the Gospel of Matthew. That said, the mention of the house, not the mention of, of a cave. That's an important detail for you to see. Okay, let's, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. Move from the Gospel of Matthew. Find your way into the Gospel of Luke. Turn to the right, to the right, to the right, to the right, and find your way to Luke chapter 2. He's going to give us some more details. The Gospel accounts harmonize. The authors give you different bits and pieces. Oftentimes they overlap. Sometimes they fill in some of the gaps. It's, it's fun to read the Bible and be aware of these overlaps and be aware of the fill in the gaps when you're looking at the gospel accounts. It, it gives us more of the details of Christ's birth. And, and in fact, a misreading of this text is where we get the fake news when we turn to the gospel of Luke with regard to the claim that there wasn't even a Motel 6 open for the poor Holy Family. Okay, uh, chapter 2. Draw your eyes in verse 1. Now these were the days when the decree went from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabitant earth. This was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census. Each went to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged with him and was with child. While, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And the days are completed for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay, look back at points 2 through 4 here. Do you... Do you see that here in Scripture? Let, let's move through. Verse 2. Mary is super pregnant, due at any moment, when Joseph took her to Bethlehem. Did, is that what the text says? No. There is nothing about the Holy Family coming to town last minute. Nothing about Mary's mucus plug falling out or water breaking and them running around like, what are we going to do? Uh, th that actually happened to little Obadiah, who's uh, four years old now. He was... He was almost born in the back seat of the car. It was, it was a wild ride. Uh, a few of our families in the church had some close calls too. Some ended up not making it to the hospital. Some of you may, ended up not making it to the hospital because you intentionally did home birth. Uh, a few of our families in the church, that labor just kicked in. And, you know, we got stories in this church. Shoelaces tying, umbilical cords, and all kinds of stuff. You know, that's not what was going on, though. Uh, with, with regard to Christmas. Joseph, Joseph didn't procrastinate on this. Mary's not on the donkey and the baby's coming out or whatever. That's not what the Bible says. Look at verse 6. We are told, quote, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. The phrase here, the days, right? This is a figure of speech that is used for a period of time. Like we say, back in the day, you know, when I was young, I'm not a kid anymore. Back in the day, we used to, you know, wear karate shoes. Back in the day, we used to do whatever. You know, I don't, I, it's a period of time. The days were completed. A period of time had passed. 
there's a clear time lapse between the arrival in Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus. But what about the mention of the inn, Pastor Matt? There's no room for the inn in verse 6. That, that sure sounds like number 3 here, that Joseph failed to make travel plans, so when they got to Bethlehem, there were no friends or family, there wasn't even a hotel. Now, geographically, this makes no sense. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a significant distance for an expectant mother to travel, let alone. They knew from the very beginning, from a direct revelation from God, we, we saw that in Matthew's account, they knew from the very beginning what was going on. Why would they procrastinate? The Bible says nothing of the sort. I have a problem with this kind of Homer Simpson passive male version of Joseph on the surface. Because in the Bible, we, we saw in, in, in Matthew, 19, Matthew 1, 19, he's a righteous man. He was making plans. Matthew literally told us about how he was a planner. He was making plans when all this first started to happen of what he would do with Mary. I mean, he's a planner. Recall what we read there in Matthew 1, 19, when Joseph discovered she was pregnant. Before he knew that it was a miracle, he was making plans to protect her, to shelter her. He was both merciful and a planner. Further, the verse says that he was righteous. He did the right thing in life. It would have been shameful and sinful to neglect his care for Mary. Joseph would have been uh, expected to, 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 to lead, to, expected to love, expected to range not only lodging, but in that culture, he would have had an expectation to also have a midwife. He needed to have a Katie Barnes in his life who's going to roll with him and help him out. Aside from the text of Scripture, our knowledge of the sociocultural background would deem this kind of Homer Simpson, Al Bundy, incompetent Joseph is fake news. We, we know from history that Jewish people were very hospitable people. In fact, it's a part of their faith. The Hebrew Bible commands the hospitality of God's people. Further, the love of family, the love of neighbor is so tantamount in Hebrew scripture that, that it is akin to one's love for God. John would say you can't say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. It's, it's a lie to do that. Like they're called to love people. They're called to love outsiders. It would have been a huge insult, a huge insult not to welcome someone in their time of need, let alone to Joseph's family. Uh, Joseph's family is from Bethlehem. According to the Bible, he's from the lineage of David. That town would have been filled with cousins and uncles and aunties and, you know, friends and all. That's where he's from. It would have been culturally offensive to come to town and to try and stay in a hotel. You wouldn't do that. You, the expectation would be that you would stay with family. It would have been culturally offensive for people to turn him away I, in his own hometown. Are you kidding me? There wasn't a couch that he could surf on? This just doesn't make sense of the culture and the biblical history. Renowned biblical scholar Dr. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, let me quote, he says, even if he had uh, never been there before, he can suddenly appear at the home of a distant cousin, recite his genealogy, and he is among friends. Joseph had only to say, I am Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Matthion, the son of Eleazar, the son of, of Elihud. And immediately the response would have been, hey man, you're welcome. What can we do for you? If Joseph did have some member of the extended family resident in the village, he was honor bound to seek them out. Furthermore, if he did not have family or friends in the village as a member of the famous house of David, for the sake of David, he would still be welcomed in almost any village in any home. A hotel would, have been a, would not have been a cultural option. Further, it would not have been an actual historical option. Inns, inns, motels of the day were located on main roads in major cities. And that, that, that's kind of true in our culture as well. They're on major roads or they're off of highways or whatever. Bethlehem was podunk. This is Eight Mile, this is the Hood, this is the Sticks. We, we have no archaeological evidence of hotels being in that area. What about verse 7? There was no room for them in the inn. What, well, the, the text mentions an inn, so there must have been an inn there. Yeah, well, the text is written in English, and sometimes our English culture impacts the way we translate words. So let me put the original word in front of you. It is this word, kataluma. Now, kataluma. The word was used in Jesus' day for a guest room in a private home. That's what a kataluma is. It's not a motel. It's a guest room in a private home. In fact, in the Bible, it is used this way. Let me, let me show you so you can see this. This is the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, where Jesus tells the disciples to go and to get ready for the Last Supper. And what does Jesus tell them in Mark 14? He tells them, go to the city, you're going to meet a guy, and, you know, go to the owner of the house and tell him, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Kataluma. 
in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he'll show you a large upper room that is finished and prepare you for it. What is the Kataluma on the lips of Jesus? It's a room inside someone's house. Uh, 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 further, in, in Luke's account of the Last Supper, he uses the same word here. Luke chapter 22, verse 11, same thing. Where is my Kataluma? that I can have some Passover with my disciples. That's what the word meant. It's very clear in these texts that the Cataluma is a part of a private home. It's a guest room. It's not a hotel. In fact, speaking of Luke and Inns, we see the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The victimized man, he's beat half to death, and, and you know, nobody wants to help him out. And, and then here's this, you know, sort of ethnic outcast Samaritan guy who comes. And what does the Samaritan do? He puts him inside of an inn. Luke chapter 10, verse 34, the Samaritan takes the guy who's all beat up and he puts him inside of, the, of an inn. And guess what? In Luke 10, 34, the word kataluma is not used. It's, it's pandokion, which is the word that is used for inns. And it is, in the, in the parable, it's a major road. And so you have pantokion. You don't have kataluma. Okay, fine. I'm showing you. It's not a hotel. It's a guest room. But Jesus wasn't even born in the guest room then. So where was he born? You're deconstructing the fake news, okay? I'm trying to understand this, Pastor Matt. Okay, well, okay, this is where number four comes in. Because there was no place to stay in the fake news, Joseph took Mary to the animal barn or the stable or perhaps a cave where she gave birth to the Christ child. Now, according to Luke 2, 7, you have it in front of you. It says what? That Jesus was born in a manger. And so people say, well, you know, it must be a barn. It must be an animal stall. It must be detached from a house in the sticks where animals were kept or in a cave where animals were kept to keep them safe from predators and whatnot. Now, regarding the cave, it is actually worth noting that ancients like Justin the Martyr, around 150, Origen in the 200s, Jerome in the 300s, there are ancient people who believed in the, in the cave hypothesis. In fact, Emperor Constantine's mom uh, believed it, and so Constantine in 335, he built a holy site on a cave to commemorate Christ's birth, which is known as the Church of the Nativity. And those of you from church who came on our last Israel trip, I took you to the Church of the Nativity. You got to see this site. It's a cool site to look at. Now, the problem with the cave idea, though there is a way to reconcile it, and I'll mention it later, a definite problem is with it sort of being this detached barn, uh, is that number one, doesn't say that it's detached, and number two, in Jesus' day, the barns or the mangers were actually a part of the house. They were a part of the house. Recall the Cataluma is a part of the house. In fact, let me give you a picture so you can see this. This, is, this isn't, uh, you know, uh, done by an artist who doesn't know, you know, biblical studies. This is a scholarly rendering of a first century Jewish home. They were about 15 feet high with, a, with an open loft overlooking a courtway or an entryway. This would be open. You have a thatched roof. This is kind of the open area. You have a ladder that takes you up to the top. It, and, and so they'd be about seven feet each. Uh, we know from skeletal remains that Jews living in the first century were, were short. And so th this, this fit, uh, you know, with the archaeology there, it's about 15 feet, about 7 feet on each. You've got this open, kind of overlooking the, the courtway entry space. The, you have a space on top there for family, and you have a space on top there for a guest, a kataluma. The kataluma was in the loft. I'll say, I'll say more about the first story, but that's the second story. You can see the family space and the kataluma space. Uh, first, also notice with regard to this rendering that it's built out of stone. This is also a bit of kind of minor fake news here. You know, people will talk about Jesus as a carpenter, and you have movies and whatever with Jesus, you know, working with wood. He's got two-by-fours from Home Depot or whatever. But carpenters in that culture worked with stone. They were stonemasons. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus' stepdad is referenced as a carpenter. Sons took the family trade. So this is where we get the idea that Jesus was a carpenter. But the word that is used in Mark 6, 3 is tecton, which is a word that is used for stone workers. A tecton built with stone. And you can see see here on the structure this was stone and it was overlaid with a mixture of mud and 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 hay uh, that they would use kind of as as stucco on this now notice notice in the picture where the manger is it is on the it is on the first story here you see the animals on the first story the manger is in here on the first story below the loft of the home now we're talking about the first story i give you a little bit about the second story the first story the first story, you have the open courtyard, you have kitchens, and you have an animal, a space for animals where a manger would be. That makes sense because if you're in your kitchen, you're cooking, and you're like, hey, I need some milk. 
You got a goat in the next room. Some of y'all don't like goat milk, but that was the staple at the time. So you got a goat and you get your milk out of the goat or whatever. You got the animals there. You, hey, we'll have some chicken for dinner. You, that's your, it's functionally your refrigerator. You just walk into the barn and, all right, uh, you know, last night with us, chicken, we're going to eat you tonight. And it's just there. Another thing that's very effective about this design is that heat rises, as we all know. So having animals on the first story actually brought heat to the home. The heat of the animals worked as kind of insulation in the home. Added it was good to keep animals in the home because of thieves. This is sort of your ancient low jack. Uh, you, you can kind of keep a track on your animals. Thieves will get them. Predators will get them. Jesus spoke about animals being inside of homes. Luke chapter 13, verse 15. Write it down. You can look it up. He spoke in Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, about how you can take a lamp and you can light the whole house with it. So here you can see how that works in that culture. You take a lamp and you put it in your courtyard or you pay, place it on the top on the second story here. It'll actually, just as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 15, it'll light the whole space. Uh, it'll light the whole space. Let me give you another picture so that you can kind of see. Let this sort of sink in and shape your understanding of, of, of the Advent. Earlier I said I would say more about the cave and possible harmonization. A home could be built in front of a cave or beside of a cave. This, this happens. And so that would harmonize the ancient tradition of Jerome and Justin Martyr and Origen and Augustine's mom and whatnot. A lot of homes, it's, there's a lot of rock. That's what you build out of in, in the land. And so you could build your house up against one and you could kind of use that as a part of your house. That, that fits. Uh, in fact, in circa 155, the historic figure Justin Martyr, he was facing some fake news of his day. Uh, uh, Justin is known also as an apologist because he wrote works dealing with attacks that were made against the faith. And there were some who were arguing against the virgin uh, birth. And Justin Martyr argues around 155, why don't you all go to the cave where he was born and you can see his manger there? You know, they're just that, they're that close to the eyewitnesses. You guys can go down there and you can argue with the rock for Pete's sake because it's all there. You can see it. This easily could be a part of a home. Uh, you, you have here even a door right here where you could have storage. On this side of it, you could have a cave. You could have a home built out of stone, built out of that. Now, with the picture in front of you and the text of Scripture in front of you, let's put it together. Joseph, is, Joseph gets the revelation from God. You know, whoa, this is crazy. Right? And, and meanwhile, there's this thing going on where you got to go register in your hometown. The government's doing goofball stuff. You know, you got to go to the DMV. Ah, oh, the DMV. I could, you know, I could get to Bethlehem in a shorter time. So you, you got to go stand in line. You got to do your thing. Bethlehem's his hometown. Picture it. There's tons of family that have to go to town. You know, family members maybe he hasn't seen in a while or spread out around the land and, and they're all coming to town. So you got your cousins, you got your friends, you know, people you went to high school with and whatever. Hospitality is everything in the culture. That said, because of the census, everyone's coming to town. So family and friends would have been taxed. They would have been exhausted. So it makes sense that, 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 that Luke would tell us no one had a cataluma. All of the guest rooms in their private homes were filled up. That it's no hotels, it's just that the Cotalumas and people's private homes were, were filled up. But that doesn't mean that we don't have an air mattress that we can, we can put over here in the courtyard or, or, or you know, we can, put over, we can put over here and, you know, by the animal or by the storage. It doesn't mean we can't squeeze a little air mattress in for you, right? If your parents come to town or whatever, that's what you do. You just, you squeeze them in, you make it work. Luke describes how they just repurposed a manger for a crib. Here's a picture of mangers that we have unearthed from archaeology. Notice what they are made of. They are made out of stone and not wood. Now again, don't go home and destroy your wood mangers. I like this one. I think Mike Dolan built it, did a fantastic job. Give it up for Mike Dolan. There's a lovely little manger over here. One of these days we'll learn how to work with stone and make a stone one. You know? But contextually here, you see this. The troughs, they, they put slop in them for feeding the animals. They pour water into them, right? You're not going to pour water into that thing for letting animals drink. They had stone mangers. The carpenters, the tectons, work with stone. They build out of stone. So, you know, they got a, they got a stone one, and, you know, uh, there, there you have it, and you, you see that. Now, you might say, who cares, wood, stone, that's not a big deal. I'm going to show you something later where it's actually kind of cool, but I'll, I'll save it, so just hang on to that. So I, I think what happens is that we miss something with our pop-cultural Christmas nativity scenes in our day. I love Charlie Brown, I love the Christmas things, I love the recreations or whatever, but it, ha it has a way of distracting from actually what was happening in, and w with regard to the incarnation of the eternal Son. The story of Christmas 
It's the story of God redeeming the fallen world. The story of Christmas goes back to creation, when, when humanity rebelled against the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. And from the very beginning there, in the book of Genesis, God, God promised that he would send one through the seed of the woman that would remedy these things. And that very promise that we find in Genesis 3 is now coming to fruition through the people of promise, also in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus is the seed of Abram. He's the seed of promise who will come and do these things. He's not just a man of history. He's God of eternity. He's the Son who eternally dwells with the Father and Spirit who enfleshed himself and stepped into this history and stepped into this story and stepped into a cramped and crowded home and came into a little, little stone manger like this. And I think with our pop cultural nativity scenes in our days, there, there's just a, a kind of subtle stance where we move it away from directing the reality of the incarnate Son who has come for us. And we start getting caught in these little details. And Oh, Joseph, you know, Joseph is like Homer. He doesn't obey God. He doesn't do his duties as a man. And, you know, you know Mary, she, you know, she didn't plan anything. And they're just all kind of bumbling along or whatever. And it doesn't fit the culture. It doesn't fit the text. The Cataluma, as I've labored to show, it's not a Motel 6, it's a part of a home, and there's also animals are a part of the home. Look at this reconstruction of a first century home from the area and the culture. This is in the Semitic uh, Museum at the University of Harvard. If you ever get out there, you can see it. It, it is uh, uh, almost life-size. This is a little bit short, but you look at this and you imagine the scene. Imagine the home filled with people and family in town. Imagine the great family reunion with everyone in town. And now imagine there's a new child in the, in the family of David. And the family's happy. I mean, in our family, we, ha we have the Petrini's had a baby. We got a flower out. And we all clapped and we're all excited. And we want to see this baby. And here they are and there's this newborn child and everyone's excited. According to one source, we know that infant mortality rate in first century Roman Empire is like 30%. Nearly a third of all babies died by the age of one. I mean, the family had every reason to be happy. We got a little healthy baby, and they wrapped the baby in swaddling clothes. And unlike modern culture like ours, where you need a big house, and you got to have a separate room with a crib, and it's got to be all decorated, it's got to be all posh, and, you know, you got you to have a, you know, a flat screen TV and a mini fridge, and, you know, you got to have all this stuff to make yourselves happy. Here's this little family that's just squeezed, just squeezed into this small space, and they're happy that this baby is alive. And that said, they don't have any idea, according to the narratives, of the fullness of what is going on. They don't see the full picture. Based on what the angel told uh, Joseph and Mary, right, they know that the child was a result of a miracle of the Holy Spirit. They know that the child, according to Matthew 1, 20 and 21, that he would save the people from their sins. Matthew inserts in the narrative that this was in fulfillment of prophecy in Matthew 1.23, but that's an insertion, right? That's a narrator talking on top of it. Mary and Joseph, they don't know it at the moment. The gospel narratives kind of show that they're sort of figuring it out, Joseph and Mary. It's a progressive revelation. Likewise, the angel told Mary that, that she was given favor by God to carry the child, that she didn't choose this child, but God had chosen her and given her favor. So the result of this work of the Holy Spirit in her womb produced this child uh, of her genetic material, but, but is not from this world, is eternal, the eternal son. In Luke 1.32, the angel said, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Mary and Joseph knew, okay, there's a baby. Okay, God did this. Uh, we haven't done it because we haven't done that. Uh, so there's a baby. God did this. And this baby is messianic. He's going to be on the throne of David. There was the covenant that was made with David that he'd have a perpetual throne. And the ancient Jewish people were waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God. And they knew that was tied to, to David. The Jews knew the prophecy that the Messiah was also going to be born in Bethlehem. That's very clear in Micah 5.2, which is the home of David. And so when they were being sent for the census to go to Bethlehem, and then they received the revelation of the angel that they have an anointed one, which is what Christ means, who's of David, who's going to sit on David's throne, that, you know, they might go, oh man, this is like prophecy. They said the Messiah would come. So they have some concept of like this, this baby is the Messiah, but what's going to happen is going to be later to be revealed. It's progressive revelation as you read these accounts. It's kind of like watching the Mandalorian trying to figure out who Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda is. You've got to keep watching and you get some stuff filled in. And as you keep reading the gospel accounts, so too. As you watch, you find that the person of the Christ child is God in the flesh. 
Yeah, he's, he's Israel's Messiah. Yeah, he's going to save you from your sins, but he's also the Savior of the nations. And he's not a third party. He's, he's not some sort of divine, lesser entity. He's, he's God. The Son has come to save sinners. And, and, and in his earthly nature, he's born. And in his eternal nature, he's without beginning or end in the one person. And this is what makes the scene so humble and so amazing. The Son of God comes to a poor family, a pregnant teenage girl in the, in, in the backwoods of Bethlehem where there's not even hotels because it's so poor there. There's not even hotels. And, and, and there is this family that's, that's welcomed him in and, and, and the shame of not even having a Cataluma because they're already packed and, and, and there's not enough space even in the Cataluma because they got a baby coming and midwife and labor and what have you. And so they're, they're perhaps in the courtyard or off to the side or hanging in the manger section and the baby is placed in this stone manger. And you go, that's God in the flesh in a stone manger in a packed house. Verse 11 in the text, for today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's the Lord. He's the Master. He's sovereign. He's the ruler. He's the, the Savior. Now at that time, saviors, they, they brought up kind of socio-political connotations. The Jewish people were oppressed people. The Rome, the Rome was horrible to them. They had occupied their land, they'd taken their stuff and just, just lorded it over them. And they were waiting for a Messiah who would come and overthrow that. And you see that in the Gospel accounts. You see it loud with Judas. He really wanted Jesus to be that guy. You, you see that loud. You see Herod, who's supposed to be the king, who's intimidated by him. Verse 18, we read, And all who heard and wondered these things were, were told them by the shepherds. You know, you read there in verse 18, they're wondering... They're going, what's going on here? We got a revelation. We're in Bethlehem. Prophecy says Bethlehem. We know this child is, has something to do with the Davidic covenant. He's Messiah. And now there's shepherds showing up. And the shepherds and the Holy Family are going, what's going on? You got all your crazy cousins all packed in. And you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And maybe some family gossip and whatever. And we read in verse 19 that Mary, look at the text, treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. What is going on? What, we know God is doing something, but what is going on? The shepherds went back, verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen just as they had been told. In God's providence, God was bringing independent cooperation to the Holy Family about what was happening. And the narratives of the New Testament give us this wondrous nativity. It's intimate. It's humble. It's raw. It's so much better than these pop cultural ones where they're just kind of far off and they're disconnected and whatever. Now, the implications for Advent, the last point that I have for you. On your outline, you have a reference there to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. For sake of time, I won't read it. We'll reference it. This is Chris, Christmas Christology at its finest in the New Testament. In this passage, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the love of the eternal Son who took on flesh and lived a lowly life of a bondservant, suffering and, and serving with humility. I think it is important to get the nativity right in these little minor details because, one, it's a matter of history. We're reading history here. And so you want to get that history right further because the Bible actually records it and it's sacred writ, so we want to get it right. I stand before the people of God to preach the Word of God, not a children's play or a Charlie Brown Christmas. I want us to see the biblical scene. And so we do a little deconstructing so we could get the clutter out of the way and we could show it to you. More deeply than seeing the Christmas scene, I want you to see the Christ. I want you to see the beauty of the eternal Son becoming a man. I want you to see the beauty of, of His sacrifice. Had He not taken on flesh, He, he could not die. Not only in, in, in this sacrifice, I, I, want, I want you to see what Philippians 2 really stresses for us. He's equal with God, and the Son becomes a man, and He empties Himself, the text of Philippians said. Attitudinally, He empties Himself of all the prerogatives that, that He has, and he, and he enters into a life of, of a servant. Philippians talks about this lowly life. The narratives of his birth show it's lowly. Shepherds are lowly. They're outcasts. Many of them view them as, as unclean. They're outcasts. Who visits him first? The outcasts. They visit him on the day of his birth. The outcasts come. Years later, the, the great magi would come, and that would be a part of prophecy and symbolism of the Messiah of Israel being the Savior of the nations. It would be an indictment on the, on the, the politics of, of Rome and Herod, that Herod himself wouldn't come and bow down, but foreign kings would bow down. And so all of this, you see, the text is showing you this story. And, and, and the gospel accounts are giving you a story that connects Christmas to the cross. When, when Jesus died, 
I said I'd save this for later, the significance maybe of the stone here for the narratives and the imagery of the New Testament. Recall that when Jesus died, he was placed in a bed of stone and he was wrapped, he was wrapped in cloths of linen. Recall in the Gospel account here what we read, that when he was born, he is placed in a bed of stone, a manger, and he's wrapped in cloths of linen. There's foreshadowing there for us to see. And so when we get caught off in some of our cultural things where you're like, oh, pretty angels, or oh, Joseph, he's lame, or oh, this or that, you kind of miss the beauty of the text of Scripture. You know the cross, it was a form of execution that was exacted typically on lower classes. It was a common slave's death. The cross was a symbol of oppression and poverty and empire, and so too the birth of Christmas. The empire has a census. you got to go to Bethlehem. Obey the powers. And little do they know they're in subjection to the sovereign God who's fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5.2. And the Christ child enters human flesh in, in poverty. He's oppressed. He has nothing. He's crammed in. With a virgin conception, yeah, it's a miracle. It's not normal. But the birth of a poor Jewish baby to Jewish peasants under the boot of their government, that happened all of the time. Cataluma's being full, that happened all of the time. And here's what this means. The birth of Jesus was normal. It was authentic. It was real. He lived the life that humans live. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't this, you know, kind of romantic date night with Joseph and Mary off in some stable out. And, no, no, he, he entered into our broken world. Let's take communion. Let's think of him in our broken world. The eternal son taking on flesh. You know, growing up in Los Angeles and living in uh, uh, lower income sections of the neighborhood, there's lots of sections in the city where you have minority families who are all packed into one, one home. They're, they're sharing everything to make ends meet. There's not private space. There's not me time or whatever. There's not, there's not anything. They're just crammed in and they're filled with so much joy when they come to the table and they celebrate their family. This is a celebration of our family, this meal. We celebrate the one who was in flesh for us. The king of kings came to earth and he experienced human poverty and darkness to redeem his people. He bled out for us. In Christmas, he received the body that would bleed out for us. And so we drink the cup and we think Christmas to cross. Let's drink. We began with the admonition to defend the faith from outside attacks. We moved to a deconstruction to explore our nativity. Contrary to pop opinion, we don't see Mary having contractions on the way to Bethlehem, trying to find a Motel 6. Joseph is in on Expedia.com trying to figure out what to do because he was a slacker. He's not on his phone posting on Facebook. Anybody got an extra room? It's cold outside. We saw how this is just culturally absurd. We saw the term kataluma is used inside of the Bible. We saw how animals are kept inside of the home. It's a culture, you know, you pet your animals, they love their animals. It wasn't like a, you know, a big deal, like, oh, you got to be born, like, you know, people slept down there, it wasn't a big deal. One of my problems with the pop cultural Christian fake news narratives is it really just romanticizes and individualizes this really raw and mysterious and humbling coming of the Christ child. Here's a, here's a picture of how it's commonly depicted. If I could get some help in the sound booth, my slide's not changing. Um, the, you know, the holy couple is out there. They're, they're all alone. Maybe some of your Christmas cards look like this. And, and notice, notice here what, what you see, right? There's no family. There's no clutter. There's no crammed in. There's not people. There's not life. There's not drama. We have the song, Away in a Manger. It was written by an American. Uh, so, you know, it's different from this culture. He's, he's almost 1,900 years removed from this. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Okay, and the lyrics go on to say, I love you, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky. Stay by my side until morning is nigh. Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask you to stay. Go by me forever and love me, I pray. Notice that the author is anxious that if he doesn't pray, Jesus won't be by his side. He has to ask for Jesus to stay with him. The language is really romantic, close by me, you know, I love you, I hope you love me too. Whereas in scripture we see that we love because he first loved us. Further, the Lord distant in the sky looking at you, the biblical Jesus 
indwells the people by the Spirit and brings an everlasting union with us and Him. It is far deeper, it is far deeper than uh, trivializing it as being by our side. He's more than being by our side, He is with us. He's more than being by our side. He's our shepherd. He's before us. He leads us. He never forsakes us. He came to Bethlehem, and he's coming again for us. And so, too, we wait this day for the coming of the Christ child, and the second round won't be in poverty. It will be in power. That said, while I focused on the details of getting Christmas right and the fake of fake news and all that, more important to me right now at this very moment isn't that you get all the details of the nativity right. It's that you get right with God. And that's the message of the gospel that's been preached to you. We've all messed up. We've all sinned against him. There is forgiveness in him. The Christ child was born to die. That's, that's, that's his love for his people. And if you cry out to him right now, you will never regret it. You cry out and you repent of your sin and say, sorry, Lord, for what I have done. And you receive his forgiveness. And, and you, you swear yourself to him. You don't have to worry about, stay with me, be by my side. He'll always be with you. If you could pass a quiz on the fake news of the nativity, but you don't know the Lord personally, then listening to today's message, it, it's, lost its, it's lost its power. This is a call for you to come. This is a call for you to receive. This is a, a, an invitation, more than an invitation. I'm calling you to surrender and to come to him. We're going to close our service by singing songs to him and, and praising him who has come. So let us, let us pray. And I, I encourage those of you who've heard this message this day, if you've been postponing or waiting or pushing off or finding excuses or whatever, come today. Come to him. Be saved. Be forgiven. Be made whole in him. Lord God, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the beautiful picture that we have in Luke and in Matthew. O Father of the sending of your Son. We thank you for his humble birth, a packed house with animals and cousins and aunties and drama and darkness and confusion, a corrupt government doing goofy stuff, imposing people to go back to their towns to take a census, which was all about just taxing them and oppressing them further. And into that confused and corrupted government, a poor and impoverished land, homes that don't even have space for family members who are about to give birth, just squeezing in. Lord, I, I pray that we would behold the rawness and the, the mystery and the humility of it all, and it would shape our week this week in worship. Further, that it would call any who are listening to this today that don't know you to be moved by your work and what you've done in, in, in humbling yourself to come into human history to rescue us. Lord Jesus, save today, we pray. Lord Jesus, sanctify today, we pray. Lord Jesus, open the eyes of your church to see the blessed union that we have in you through the work of the incarnation and the cross, the resurrection, and your second coming. In your name, we ask these things. In your name, we seek you to fill us with hope this week for your coming and the celebration of your advent. Amen.